You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. labor's rights in the United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio, and it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. This is the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. It is Saturday, June 6th, 2020, and my name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, David Story. We are broadcasting live on the radio in the Huntsville, Decatur, Athens listening area from Athens, Alabama. Today, we will be talking to the author of the book, The End of Policing, out for free now from Verso Books, Alex Vitali about the problems of police brutality in America. After that, David Odom, president of the Tennessee Valley Progressive Alliance, will give their response to what happened in Huntsville on Wednesday night and our city leaders' subsequent statements. We'll be, talk, we'll be taking your calls throughout the program. All this and more on today's Valley Labor Report. So, like I mentioned, like I mentioned, uh, Alex Vitali is a press, uh, professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. His writings about policing have appeared in the New York Times, New York Daily News, USA Today, The Nation, and Vice News. He's made appearances on NPR, and the reason that he's on the line today, he's the author of The End of Policing, out now for free at Verso Books. So, um, Professor, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, come on today. I've seen you all over the place, been giving dozens and dozens of interviews. So I really appreciate you just uh, taking the time to uh, to talk to us. It means a lot. Sure. No problem. So um, you believe that we have deep systemic problems in, in, our, in, in the system of policing in America. Um, I'd like for you to just just kind of take some time to to lay that out. And one of the interviews that that I've heard you give, uh, you know, you, you were talking about like at the, in this group, I don't think I, you didn't feel like you had to give the ABCs of of that. But but here, I'd like you to really just kind of take some time to explain that because a lot of folks, you know, they see what happened to George Floyd and they think that's obviously bad. This is a bad cop. That's a bad apple. We need to get rid of the bad apples. But like. There's no, you know, there's no deep, real, systemic problems, right? This is just a bad apple. We get rid of the bad ones and everything's fine, right? That's really the challenge in the current conversation. Now, I'm getting feedback on my end. I don't know if you can do something about that, but there we go. I think that's better. Thank you. So, okay. you know, it, it's true that we've tended to look at the problem of policing through the, the lens of these really... Uh, egregious acts of extreme violence and then we've crafted a whole set of reforms that are designed to kind of address that but the problem is really much greater than that it's not just those individual incidents it's really the decision over the last few decades to expand policing 
into more and more aspects of people's everyday lives. There's a problem in the schools, so they turn that over to school police. We have mass homelessness, so we create police homeless outreach units. We decimate community-based mental health services, and then we have the police going on mental health crisis calls. And police just aren't the right tool for a lot of these problems. And so many of the problematic and horrific cases that we've seen are, are tied to the kind of misuse or over-reliance on, on policing. It's, it's really about 10 million punitive interactions between the police and the public every year. And we need to you know, re-examine this rather than spend all our time trying to figure out whether or not there are a few bad apples on the police department. Okay, so... Um... What about uh, what about like racism in in the system of policing? Do you, um, Let's see. I can't hear you very well. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me, Alex? I can't hear Alex? you very well. Uh, how about now? And I'm, and, yes. Okay. And I'm getting still a little feedback. It's making me a little hard to hear. Okay. I'm I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure, sure. what's happening with that. But. Um, can can you tell us about uh, uh, the problem of, of racism in the system of policing? The, you know that that's one of the big issues that people are worried about right now, and that's one of the things that that a lot of critics of the systemic you, you know some some kind of systemic issues say like that that you know this is just a bad this is just a problem with bad cops and in innocent people. There's no like actual racism, right? They'll they'll say that you know. Um, the populations that are that are encounter more uh, confrontations with the police, they say that they just commit crime more. Right. So the the disparities in policing can't can't be explained just by differentials in who commits crime. Though there are certainly differentials, and we need to ask some questions about why that is. But we also don't want to imagine that the problems of race and policing are just about individual officer decision-making. One of the things that really bothers me is this idea that we, we can fix policing with things like implicit bias training. This has become very popular and was being used in many police departments, including Minneapolis. And the idea is that the problems of race and policing can be reduced to the discretionary decision-making of an individual officer and that that officer's decision-making is unconscious and unintentional. So the problem with this is twofold. One is that we do have some problems with explicit racism in American policing. I mean, we see these email threads and chat boards and and sometimes really problematic statements by police union leaders around the country. We've, we've got evidence of police tied to right-wing, you know, white supremacist organizations. But I think it's a mistake to put all our eggs in that basket and say that, that, that if we just get rid of a few ra you know, overtly racist police officers, that that'll fix the problem. The racism, in my opinion, is more deeply embedded in the decision of politicians to turn the problems of poor and especially poor non-white communities over to the police to solve. 
you know, so many of the punitive interactions between police and the public aren't really about crime. They're about disorder and quality of life issues, things that get resolved or that don't even exist in wealthier neighborhoods, and they get resolved in less punitive ways. So when we, when we turn like the drug problem over to the police to manage, the fact is, is that that enforcement is going to fall more heavily on poor communities and communities of color because their drug use is going to produce more problems in more public ways. So that if a young person in a wealthy neighborhood has a substance abuse problem, that's much more likely to take place in the home, to be dealt with through a medical treatment intervention. But in a poor community, it's going to involve street level use, more likelihood of using uh, theft to pay for drugs, et cetera. So it seems like, well, they're just going where the problem is. But there's a reason why the problems are concentrated there. And when we use police in that context, we're actually making racial inequality worse because by driving people into the criminal justice system, we're actually making their lives more difficult, cutting off their opportunities for success. All right, we're going to talk some more about that uh, and, and some of your critiques of the more liberal reforms that have been tried uh, on the other side. We're going to take a break short. Uh, we'll be back in just a second. This is the Valley Labor Report. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, Is providing skilled legal there? representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. But the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maple, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtandj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. All workers deserve fair wages, affordable health care, and a retirement plan that enables them to retire with dignity. All workers deserve to have a say about the terms and conditions of their employment, not just the bosses. With the machinist unions, over 600,000 members having our back, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama has been serving workers' interests for over 20 years. Our members have the best health insurance in the area with zero deductible plans. We set the bar for pay in the area with over $40 an hour rates, consistently averaging the highest non-college degree jobs in North Alabama with some of the best retirement plans in the industry. We can do the same for you. Together, we remain united, raising our voices to ensure justice on the job and service in the community. The Machinist Union is a true Southern Union founded in Atlanta in 1888. We have been serving members' needs for 132 years. The longevity of our union proves our dedication and loyalty to the working class. The Machinist Union isn't just for machinists. We represent workers in government, health care, auto workers, aerospace workers, transportation workers, the defense industry, and woodworking. Our members even build the iconic Harley-Davidson motorcycles. If you're ready to get serious about better benefits and wages, if you want to have a voice in your workplace with over 600,000 members to back you up, call or email us today at 256-286-3704 or 
organize at iamaw44.org. Here in Huntsville, federal employees are an invaluable part of the nation's defense, offering unmatched expertise in engineering and technology and as stewards of taxpayer dollars. What we ask for in return is to be treated with fairness, dignity, and respect. The American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE, Local 1858, is a union of working people looking out for each other, making sure that we're treated right. To inquire about joining or to learn more, call 256-876-4880. Hey y'all, are you tired of hearing that the South is just a bunch of racist rednecks? Or tune in to Dixieland of the Proletariat podcast. We talk about Southern working class history and current events through a leftist perspective. Join Nelson, Senior Telecommunications Director Tommy, Comrade Kate, former pig farmer Tyler, and Brother William, wherever you stream your podcasts. And good Lord willing, the creek don't rise. We'll see you all next time. It's Dixieland of the Proletariat, y'all. WVNN. It's Jacob Morrison with your co-host, David Story. On the line, we have Alex Vitali. Uh, he's a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. Uh, he is the author of a book, The End of Policing. And we've been talking to him about some of the uh, um, some of the deeper problems that that police with the institution of policing in America, and um, so where we left off, you were talking we were talking about some liberal ref- we, we we were about to get to some liberal reforms that you feel have been ineffective. Um, and so and you mentioned. Uh, diversity training and increased diversity on the police forces and so that's something especially you know like from a liberal from a liberal point of view right that's one of the first things that people think of is like oh well this was a white cop and it was a black man if it was a black cop then these things wouldn't happen but but you say that you say that's actually not true yeah that's right there's really no evidence that the race of officers makes any difference in in how policing is carried out. I mean, it's sort of hard to believe, right? You would think that that it would make some difference, but but we have really a huge body of research from all different kinds of cities that shows that the the race of officer doesn't affect the likelihood that someone's arrested, the level of force that's used, you know, maybe someone feels a little better about the encounter if it's with someone of the same race, but it's not going to fix policing. It, it might be an important kind of tool for economic justice to, to spread those jobs around more equitably, but it's not going to make policing better. And, and we can just see in, in recent weeks the number of cities with massive protests that have tried to diversify their police forces or have an African-American police chief, and it just hasn't really changed. And, and part of the reason for that is that it doesn't get at this question of our over-reliance on policing, and that is really driving so much of this problem. Right, right. And, and you mentioned that uh, I've read one of your one of your articles, I believe it was in The Guardian, that Minneapolis specifically has had a, a large um, actually program to try to combat these issues. Um, and, and it was following a, a lot of guidelines from the Obama Justice Department, but obviously it, it hasn't, you know, it didn't, it, it didn't work. Um, it didn't it, you help. can, it you can see help. that from the, from what happened to George Floyd and you can see that in, in the, um, response to some of the police. I mean, the, the Minneapolis police were arresting reporters 
You know, so can can you talk to us about some of the reforms that the Minneapolis sure. Police Department did specifically and why they didn't work? So, you know, the officer that killed Floyd had had de-escalation training that was supposedly designed to try to prevent exactly this sort of thing from happening. He'd also had implicit bias training. The officers who stood around and watched him get killed had had special training about the need to intervene when other officers engage in misconduct, and they stood there and did nothing. Hmm. So we just can't see any difference. What we see is the police doing photo ops at community meetings, taking a knee, having conversations about the history of racism. I mean, yes, we have a problem of a long history of racism in in the U.S., but we're not going to fix that by making police sit in a room for an hour and talk about how bad slavery was. We have to deal with political accountability. We can't, you know, Minneapolis, they did implicit bias training and mindfulness training and de-escalation training, and they have body cameras, and they hired a black police chief, and they had an early warning system, all the stuff that the Obama Justice Department called for, and it just isn't helping because it misunderstands the nature of the problem. Right, right. So, you know, this this is the part where you've got, you know, you've probably got a lot of people in our audience um, saying like, yeah, that's right. You know, you're, you're not going to solve anything by having folks sit in a room, uh, you know, talking about how slavery was bad. And, and you know, and, and um, so you <laughs> so you may be about to lose some people with your with your alternatives. But, you know, like if this isn't right, the. the the, you're saying that all of these things that are being, or a lot of these things that are being put forward, are just feel-good measures, and they don't actually address the problem. Like this, the uh, you know, a campaign for for eight ways to to stop or whatever that that somebody has has put out, and you know, Minneapolis has tried most of these things. So, like, what is the solution then? If if we if none of these things that liberals and Democrats and the Obama Justice Department have put forward, none of them are working. What, what do we do? What is, what is the alternative there? What we have to do is we have, have to transfer the responsibilities that police have now to other mechanisms for addressing public safety in as many ways as we possibly can. And the way I recommend doing this, and I, I've been traveling the country the last three years talking to community groups about this, is that we start by doing a community-based needs assessment. What are the public safety challenges that our community faces? Is it the opioid crisis? Is it homelessness? Is it youth violence? Is it black markets and drugs and sex work? Is it burglary that's being driven by the need to get money to buy drugs? Let's figure those things out, and then we can start to craft alternatives. We can look at examples from around the United States and even internationally that target those specific concerns to see if we can figure out cheaper, more effective, and less violent and punitive ways of solving our problems. And to the extent that we can, and we've got a lot of evidence to support a lot of different interventions, 
then we need to dial back our reliance on policing, which is extremely expensive, isn't often very effective in dealing with certain things, and even when it is effective, it's effective through the use of violence, coercion, and incarceration, which should always be the tools of last resort. And part of the problem in the U.S. right now is that it's become the tool of first resort for entirely too many things. Right. That, you know, that, that, definite, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so we're coming up on a break now. Uh, uh, when we come back, we want to open it up for uh, if anybody in the audience has any questions, you can call in 1-866-494-9866. Uh, but we also want to talk about talk, talk more about the alternatives that uh, that you have and, and do some more work to show that 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 these things would work. Because a lot of people, when they hear that, you, you know, reduce uh, to, to reduce the presence of the police, the first thing that they think is that, well, you're going to put people in danger. Right. I've seen one of the one uh, one commentator say that this is an evil, stupid, privileged thing to advocate for, that the people most affected by a lack of policing are going to be women, children in poor and minority communities. And so obviously you disagree with that. So we're going to talk about that some on the other side. Stay tuned, folks. This is the Valley Labor Report. Ours are the first generations to feel the effects of climate change and the last to be able to do anything about it. The window to meet this historic challenge is closing. We're already losing our lives and livelihoods. Millions have already been impacted by climate change. We can passively accept this fate or we can join together and take back our power. If we so choose, our best days are ahead. We have a legacy of coming together to face crises that threaten the very ideals of our nation, from the horrors of slavery to the depths of the Great Depression, from the spread of fascism during World War II to the rise of Jim Crow, we have overcome before and we have the power to do it again. Let's end the climate crisis by igniting a transformational new era where the government works for the common good. Go to arminarmforclimate.org. That's arm in arm, the number four, climate.org to learn more. All workers deserve fair wages, affordable health care, and a retirement plan that enables them to retire with dignity. All workers deserve to have a say about the terms and conditions of their employment, not just the bosses. With the Machinist Union's over 600,000 members having our back, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama has been serving workers' interests for over 20 years. Our members have the best health insurance in the area with zero deductible plans. We set the bar for pay in the area with over $40 an hour rates, consistently averaging the highest non-college degree jobs in North Alabama with some of the best retirement plans in the industry. We can do the same for you. Together, we remain united, raising our voices to ensure justice on the job and service in the community. The Machinist Union is a true Southern Union founded in Atlanta in 1888. We've been serving members' needs for 132 years. The longevity of our union proves our dedication and loyalty to the working class. The Machinist Union isn't just for machinists. We represent workers in government, healthcare, auto workers, aerospace workers, transportation workers, the defense industry, and woodworking. Our members even build the iconic Harley-Davidson motorcycles. If you're ready to get serious about better benefits and wages, if you want to have a voice in your workplace with over 600,000 members to back you up, 
Call or email us today at 256-286-3704 or organize at iamaw44.org. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host David Story. On the line we have Alex Vitali, a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. He's the author of a book out for free now at Verso Books called The End of Policing. So when we left off we were talking about his his alternatives. He he said um He's saying that there are deep systemic problems with the system of policing in America. Liberal reforms haven't worked. They're just feel-good measures. And his alternative is, in almost every case, to reduce the size and scope of the police in America and replace them with other things uh, like uh, community works projects, uh, mental health, um, m- mental health care, stuff like that. But you know, one of the um, one of the criticisms of that, uh, like I said uh, when we were leaving, is, is folks will say, you know, look, it, it's nice that 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 you say this, or, or you know, I'm sure you're like goodwilled or whatever, but um, is is this a privileged thing to say? They say that the people affected most by a lack of policing are women and children in poor and minority communities. Um, you know, uh, will 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 it not hurt them more than it helps them? How, 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 how would you respond to that? Sure. So these ideas actually are rooted in the struggles of mostly black women across the United States. This is not some idea that I just cooked up in a, in a classroom, right? This is a movement that's underway across the country uh, in dozens of cities, big and small, in, in Nashville, in Durham, in Dallas. People are calling for this shifting of resources, and the people doing this calling are overwhelmingly black and brown women. So let me just maybe talk through some examples here. You know, we've got a terrible opioid overdose crisis in the United States, and we've overwhelmingly turned that over to the police to manage, and it's producing racial disparities. And then we say, well, let's train the officers in anti-bias training to fix it. But that doesn't work because a totally lawful, procedurally proper, unbiased drug arrest is still going to ruin some person's life for no good reason. Because no matter how many millions of people we throw in jail for drugs, the drugs are still out there. Nobody is going without drugs as a result of this drug war. Isn't it time that instead of creating ever more narcotics units and giving them tanks and no-knock warrants, why don't we turn this back into a public health issue? Other countries are doing this, and the results look great. We need harm reduction strategies. We need high-quality, medically-based drug treatment on demand to be available in our communities. And we also need to deal with why are people turning to such problematic drug use, the joblessness, the sense of no future. We need to address those things, too. And as we do, we can dial back that heavy-handed policing that's been the source of so many terrible incidents. Uh, Mr. Mathali, this is David's story. In my, just from looking at it from an outsider's perspective, it seems to me that the 
all of the other uh, what you're proposing sounds like great ideas from from what i've seen the past two weeks the the police just seem to have this authoritarian mentality to where violence is the answer to everything uh even here in huntsville last week during a, an absolute peaceful protest the answer was tear gas and rubber bullets and it just it's I, I just can't see how we can't get everyone on both sides of the aisle involved in this movement to because all the training in the world's not helping. Uh, they, it, it's like watching military and uh, and an Iraq or Afghanistan patrol the streets of America. Mm-hmm. And and you know, uh, Professor, you mentioned that that what police are is a use of force. It's violent and. To just and and that should be the last resort, and in a lot of times it's being used as the first resort. And so, you know, one of the things that that I I think on um, should be incumbent on conservative um, policing advocates. It it should be it should be incumbent on them to prove that violence is the last and best resort for these problems. And and that has just simply not been tried by any by any of the people that that are defenders of the status quo uh as far as i've seen they they fearmonger about reducing the size of the police they make these wild claims but i have seen no attempt to justify and to say like this has made people's lives better yeah unfortunately you know the events of the last week the handling of the protests has really been making our point for us that american policing is out of control And more importantly, it's another example of politicians turning a problem over to the police to manage instead of really getting to the root of it. You know, instead of housing people, we turn the problem over to the police to chase homeless people all over town. Hmm. And instead of dealing with the real demands to address systemic racism and abusive policing, too many of our elected officials have turned this problem over to police to suppress the protests in the hope that business as usual can continue on. And this is a real political failure. And we need to not just be angry at police for shooting us with tear gas and pepper ball rounds. We need to hold our elected officials accountable for unleashing this violence on us. Exactly. That's exactly right. And not just and not just Trump either. You know, there's obviously um, very scary things coming out of the Trump administration, like like the potential of unleashing the military on um, peaceful protesters. But uh, but but you know, like you have mentioned in a lot of your works, this is happening in a lot of predominantly progressive and liberal, you know, ostensibly cities. Um, it's not just happening here in Huntsville, Alabama, although it did. Uh, we, we've got an example, um, the protest Wednesday night, tear gas was thrown at the protesters and somebody threw it back. And now he's being charged with assault with a chemical agent where when, when, when they were defending, um, when they were defending the use of it, they called it a little bit of tear gas. But, uh, in the charge against him, when he threw it back, they're saying that it is assault with a chemical agent. Um, it, it's, it, it's insane. Yeah, uh, it's definitely a bipartisan problem. Right, right, and, and you, it can't can't be can't be reduced to simple partisan politics. That's for sure. You know, as problematic is, what Trump is doing is, 
uh, big city Democratic mayors have also been part of this process of turning thing everything over to the police to manage. Right, and you meant you mentioned that you know the 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 past week was making the case for us, and and probably one of I mean there's been so many videos that have just been horrible, but there was this one video out of Buffalo, New York, where police pushed over the 75 year old man and he began bleeding out of his ears, and um and. and and those two police were reprimanded, and his enti- their entire team left that emergency response team in protest to them being reprimanded. I mean, if that doesn't show you that the problem is not one or two bad apples, it's it's the whole it's the whole kitten caboodle. You know, I I don't know what what to tell you. You're, you're absolutely right, but it all, it also makes a slightly deeper point, right? Which is. One of the reasons those officers, I think, felt so aggrieved is that they were following orders. Right. And who's giving them those orders, right? Exactly. Like the police off- so many police officers in the United States right now do not want to be in charge of mental health services in the United States. They don't want to chase homeless people around town. They want the politicians to handle these things, not them. That's exactly right. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. Um, We've been interviewing a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College. Um, This is the Valley Labor Report. Stay tuned, and we're going to be talking to somebody from the Tennessee Valley Progressive Alliance about their response to what happened in Huntsville Wednesday night. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time, but the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maple, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855 617 9333 or visit online at www.mtandj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Public schools are critical to the success of communities and democracy. Now more than ever, our educators and school support staff are going above and beyond to support our students and families. We at the Alabama Education Association are proud to represent the hardworking employees of our public schools and colleges. Thank you for all of your love and dedication to Alabama students. Please take care and stay safe. Ours are the first generations to feel the effects of climate change and the last to be able to do anything about it. The window to meet this historic challenge is closing. We're already losing our lives and livelihoods. Millions have already been impacted by climate change. We can passively accept this fate or we can join together and take back our power. If we so choose, our best days are ahead. We have a legacy of coming together to face crises that threaten the very ideals of our nation, from the horrors of slavery to the depths of the Great Depression, from the spread of fascism during World War II to the rise of Jim Crow, we have overcome before and we have the power to do it again. Let's end the climate crisis by igniting a transformational new era where the government works for the common good. Go to arminarmforclimate.org. That's arm in arm, the number four, climate.org to learn more.
The Valley Labor Report is also supported by listeners like you. If you value the work that we are doing, injecting a different perspective into talk radio, and you have the means, consider signing up for a monthly donation on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the Valley Labor Report to support our work and keep us on the air. Hey, y'all. Are you tired of hearing that the South is just a bunch of racist rednecks? Well, tune in to Dixieland of the Proletariat podcast. We talk about Southern working class history and current events through a leftist perspective. Join Nelson, Senior Telecommunications Director Tommy, Comrade Kate, former pig farmer Tyler, and Brother William, wherever you stream your podcasts. And good Lord willing, the creek don't rise. We'll see y'all next time. It's Dixieland of the Proletariat, y'all. The talk station in Alabama. WVNN. Depend on it. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host David Story. On the line now, we've got David Odom. He is the founder and president of the Tennessee Valley Progressive Alliance. The group works to unite local people and organizations into a movement for social, economic, and environmental justice and democratization. So, David, uh, the mayor and the police chief, chief both put out statements justifying the violence that they inflicted on peaceful protesters Wednesday night. Um, can you tell us, like, what exactly, uh, just remind us what they said, if you could. So, the, the mayor put out a statement, and basically... It did two things. Um, it he offered a lot of vague and warm fuzzy language about justice, um, and then he offers offers nothing of substance. Um, no, you know, no policy proposals, no ideas, no responses to proposals the community has raised. But one of the main things they did in, in all the statements they put out is they described the protesters as essentially outside agitators. You know, that these are people who are not part of our community, they said. Um, you know, and the point we want to make is that is that's throwback language to segregationist days. They don't get to decide who's part of the community. And um, that kind of language is just beyond insulting to everybody, the thousands of people who are there. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, you know, I was there. And, of course, you know, you can't you can't recognize everybody in a crowd that big. You know, there uh, you know, you only have. You, you only know so many people in the city that you live in. But um, they arrested 24 people last night, or, or, or Wednesday night, and uh, wouldn't you know, every single one of them was a resident of Madison County. You know, you would think if there were outside violent agitators that at least one of the people arrested would have been an out-of-towner, right? You would think, wouldn't you? You know, and... um. If you look at if you look at the press conference that the Huntsville Police Chief and the Madison County Sheriff gave, um, they posted it on the Facebook page for HPD. By the way, they were making it sound like these were all Antifa commandos who were busted in from far away. Like these are you know crazy crack troops of the you know Antifa or something. Why didn't they arrest any of those folks? Mm-hmm. If they're telling us that that's who was there, um, you know they're and if you watch that press conference they gave. You know, they hold up a, a flyer and they point to um, a little anarchist A scrawled in the bottom of it. And they say, like, this is justification for, for what they did, for the tear <laughs> gas and the rubber bullets. It's just silly. I mean, and, and everybody should st- step back and ask, why do they feel the need to go so over the top to justify what they did? Unless they know it was wrong. 
Hey, David, this is David. You know, <laughs> has anybody answered the question? And maybe you've heard, and I'm being rhetorical here, of course, but for the last, ever since Trump's been in office, uh, all we've heard about is this Antifa, Antifa, Antifa. And I've yet to find anybody that's being able to uh, to point to them. It's, it's, they, they, the Republicans c- continuously drag this, this, uh, uh, this term terminology out like, like ISIS, but at least with ISIS, the, it, there's some, there's some culpability. There's some, there's some proof that there's some people out there doing this. And yet every, every time, just like Jacob said, we got 24 people arrested and there's no, there's no proof anywhere. I mean, what is right? What are they expecting? I mean, yeah, I mean, from my perspective, this is kind of what the far right always does: is it wants to make movements for justice seem like they're outsiders, they're foreigners. It's some, it's somebody who's not us. It's somebody who's coming to take something from you. You know, they want to instill that fear and that division, and those are two staples. And so, I, I think what's happening now is. Um, actions by the mayor and the police chief are kind of bringing home those concepts to a lot of people for the first time. That's, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, the, uh, I just, I, I lost my train of thought, but, but could you, <laughs> um, could you talk, talk to us a, a little bit about, uh, what your group is doing right now in response to this? One, one of the criticism, criticisms that I've heard is that there is, there's nothing like constructive being done around this. This is just a bunch of people that's mad and, the, and they want to be mad and they want everyone to know that they're mad and they're not doing anything about it. But, uh, your group is, is it, they've got a, y'all have a project that you're working on. Can you talk to us about it? Sure. Yeah, there's actually a lot of specific proposals that the community um, is offering right now. But one thing our group is working on is an effort to relocate the Confederate monument off of the Madison County Courthouse Square. Um, you know, we've been advocating that for a while. It's gaining a lot more steam right now, obviously. And one thing we're doing is, your listeners may be aware that the state of Alabama, after a 2017 law, they fine localities for moving Confederate monuments. They will fine local government, $25,000. Um, it's a, it's this crazy law. It's, it's dumb. But so what our group is doing, we've decided let's raise that money to help Madison County pay that fine. And we are very close. We have a GoFundMe uh, that's up on our Facebook page. When you combine our funds raised with um, another group that's doing similar work, we're about, I think we're about $3,000 short as of the last time I checked this morning. And uh, it's moving fast. So we want to be able to go to local government and say, look, we'll pay the fine. Just do the right thing. Take down this racist symbol. Not saying that's going to make everything better. That doesn't erase systemic racism. We all know it's a symbolic thing, but it's a step in the right direction. It says, like, hey, our community takes this seriously. We want to build a better community. And when we say your group, let's clarify that we're talking about the Tennessee Valley Progressive Alliance. We, you know, uh, if anybody wants to find find out information about your group, you know, they're y'all are on Facebook. But one of the I've been to a couple of your meetings and one of the things that impressed me about the group is it's a broad coalition. You know, it's not just a lot of uh left wing uh folks. There I 
the Madison County uh, Libertarian Party was represented there and tried to work with everybody uh, on issues that everybody could work on issues that everybody agreed upon and everybody could work on. So, you know, when uh, there's a lot of uh, of Republicans that listen to this radio show, and we just want to say, hey, uh, it's not just a progressive alliance. It's an alliance that's going to bring a lot of people together and and make movement on issues that we can move on. Right. That's absolutely right. And you, I mean, you could think of it as a working people's alliance. That's what we're trying to do. Um, you know, and an example of kind of how we're trying to bring folks together is we issued this joint response to Mayor Tommy Battle's statement about the protests. It's just a short statement. Um, it's posted on our Facebook page, and it's signed by 16 organizations, 16 local grassroots groups. So this is a broad coalition and a broad movement. And um, guess what? Mayor Battle, we're not outside agitators. We're yeah. your, uh, we're the citizens of your community. Well, and you know something that, man, this this really made me mad. Uh, um, Mayor Battle, Mayor Battle is is talking about outside agitators, and he is where where is he right now? He's out of town. <laughs> yeah. He may, uh, during this, we have the coronavirus going on. We've got this. A larger than ever before history uh, in in modern history conversation about police brutality happening happening in our country, and he has gone on vacation. He's gone on vacation. He is not. He he's just totally uninterested in addressing yeah. the 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 voice of his community that he has been elected to represent and to serve and he has the gall to talk about outside agitators while he is out of town agitators and now he's out of town you know like if folks from other communities are that interested in the well-being of Huntsville residents that they're willing to come out and support us then good on them and I love them for it because our own mayor isn't interested in it Right. I mean, you would think you would think that this is a time for leaders to step up and lead, wouldn't you? I mean, anybody with any sense recognizes that we're having a moment here, in the, you know, as a nation and as a, as a community locally. Um, but he sees it's a good time just to leave town yeah. and, uh, yeah, pass the buck. I, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. That's exactly right. Uh, David, thanks for calling in and talking to us. If people want to find out more about the Tennessee Valley Progressive Alliance, they can search for it on YouTube. Uh, David Odom is the founder and president. Uh, we're going to be talking some more after the break. If you want to chat with us, call in. The number is 1-866-494-9866. 1-866-494-WVNN. Stay tuned. This is the Valley Labor Report. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time, but the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maple, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtandj.com. 
No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Hometown Action is concerned Alabama's small towns and rural communities increasingly are coming under attack by corporate interests that run local shops out of businesses, shutter our rural hospitals, and pollute our rivers, providing only unstable poverty wage jobs with no health insurance. We know workers and local residents understand the best solution to local problems. Together, we can build the multiracial, working-class power we need to take back our communities. Please join us online at www.hometownaction.org. Thanks for standing with workers, supporting Valley Labor Talk. Public schools are critical to the success of communities and democracy. Now more than ever, our educators and school support staff are going above and beyond to support our students and families. We at the Alabama Education Association are proud to represent the hardworking employees of our public schools and colleges. Thank you for all of your love and dedication to Alabama students. Please take care and stay safe. The Valley Labor Report is also supported by listeners like you. If you value the work that we are doing, injecting a different perspective into talk radio, and you have the means, consider signing up for a monthly donation on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the Valley Labor Report to support our work and keep us on the air. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host, David Story. Uh, We had a question during the break about the nature of the fine um, and and whether or not it was one time or per day. And the situation there is that initially the state threatened to make it $25,000 per day. But the attorney general, after the protests in Birmingham, I think it was Monday night, clarified that it would only be a one-time fine. And so, um, in my opinion, that's kind of like the compromise because they saw that that keeping keeping these statues, especially in Birmingham, which is a which is a city that's that's uh, nearly seventy percent black, keeping these monuments to the Confederacy in a city like that at this time was just simply untenable. And so they backed down a little bit. Uh, but but the attorney uh, the attorney general has said that it would only be a one time thing. Now you know you can you can disagree. About uh, about whether or not you know that's him backing down or that's just a clarification that's been made. I think it's the state backing down to the demands of the people when they were heard loudly. Uh, but you know whatever whatever you want to make of it, um, it is a one time thing. The twenty five thousand dollar is a one time thing. Yep. And and whether you agree with the with the removing the statues or not, you know I'm I'm I'm. I've kind of been ambivalent in the past on it up until uh, up until this past week, whenever I seen the people protesting on the statue, and and I've, I'm kind of of the opinion that you know there there is a case to be made to keep those statues uh, from being destroyed, but I think the place for them is like. But uh, one of my recommendations was the uh, the national. I think it's the National Institute of Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta mm-hmm. that we visited last year. Uh, I think that is a good place for uh, things like that. So you can put put that in context with everything else that went on, and it don't just stand on its own. 
That's exactly right. You know, the the push to pull down these monuments has never been, to my understanding, um, an effort to, like, like no one has been proposing that they be cremated or anything. You know, the proposals have always been to move them from public spaces where they're obviously celebratory in in their in what they portray to the public, where they're obviously glorifying the cause of the Confederacy. Um, they're perpetuating the lost cause myth that you know it wasn't about slavery when that's obviously why the Confederacy seceded from the Union. Um, and putting them in places like a Confederate cemetery or in a civil rights museum where these statues can be put in their context, and their context is. Uh, you can look at graphs of when monuments to the Confederacy were erected, and they were almost all of them, like 95% of all Confederate monuments that have ever been erected were either erected, one, immediately after Reconstruction, where uh, whites in the South reasserted their dominance, instituted Jim Crow laws and were uh, and and were violently oppressive when, when the KKK started becoming more prevalent. That's when the first round of Confederate statues went up. Immediately after Reconstruction, it died down. Almost no Confederate statues are erected until the Civil Rights Movement, yeah. where again we have fraught race relations in the South, and the answer of the white governments is to put these monuments to the Confederacy that they know that most communities of color see as uh, monuments to slavery, which is what it is in actuality. And, and so that's the only times that these statues have been erected. And so there's just there's simply no case that these were earnestly erected as part of Southern heritage. And and the Confederate leaders immediately after didn't want them either. Robert E. Lee is quoted as saying, like, no, we don't need to um, uh, glorify, lionize the cause of the Confederacy that would only deepen old wounds. Like, we just need to forget about it. We're one country now, and we need to move forward. And, um, and so that's what people have always advocated. But during this time, again, of fraught race relations, where we have this epidemic of police brutality um, on poor and minority communities and poor whites, uh, um, you know, the, the people in Birmingham have just simply had enough. You know, I mean, like I said, this is a nearly 70% black city that's being told by white folks in the state government. That outside, they, agitators. Outside, agitators. outside agitators. Outside agitators. Outside agitators. I mean, no kidding. No kidding. Seriously, it's insane when you think about it like that. This mostly black city, the fourth blackest city in America, is being forced by outside agitators to keep up monuments to their oppression. I mean, that's insane, unjustifiable. And so uh, they've stopped trying to justify it because um, the people of Birmingham had just had enough. And, you know, good on them. Good on them. I'm proud of them. Yep. Yep. Uh, let's, let's, uh, not, not that the Confederate monuments aren't important, but I think, you know, when we get off on these tangents with the Confederate monuments, we're, uh, we're ignoring what's happening in our communities right now and what's happening is what uh mr vitali was talking about earlier with the authoritarian police um absolutely being violent 
towards a group of protesters and you know i watched i i wasn't at the i wasn't at the uh protest this past week in huntsville it was they i didn't know i got an invite like within two hours of it happening so i couldn't mm-hmm. get over there but i watched the whole thing on live stream i think it was on one of the local uh one of the local tv shows and what what was surprising to me after the fact looking at what Huntsville and the mayor came out with and said about, well, there were people in the streets, things like that, was I watched the entire thing, and not once did I see the police walk over there to the protesters and say, look, you have a right to be here, because the truth of the matter is there is no curfew in place. Mm-hmm. It's a public place, that, you know, but they were in the street. But not once did the police walk over and say, hey, y'all have a right to be here. Just get out of the street. Just right. move away from the streets, stay on the sidewalks, right. do whatever. You know, they, they, it, they, it, it was as if, and I, I believe that's the case. They were, they were more than happy to, to fire off the tear mm-hmm. gas and to fire off the rubber bullets. They wanted to do that. I mean, it's like cosplay for them. I mean, seriously, it's, it's, uh, you know, yeah. I'm gonna get some heat for that maybe, but that's what it is. Like these, the and and you can you can look and see what happened last night at the protests. Last night the protest um, d- uh, dissolved completely peacefully, and the last thing that happened was a dance party, like in, in the park, and there were there were like cops that were dancing around, and that's the 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 reason that the protest last night was so much more peaceful and so much less fraught is completely due to the orientation that the police took towards it. If the police had took that attitude towards the protests Wednesday night, then um, nobody would have gotten shot, nobody would have gotten arrested, nobody would have been tear gassed, nothing. None of that would have happened, but the police were acting like a military occupying force and that these peaceful protesters were their enemy combatants. And people have a problem with me saying peaceful because they were like shouting mean words at the cops and like get over yourself okay get over yourself they were peaceful nobody until the cops threw tear gas there was not an instance of property destruction or violence by the protesters some of them were mean some of them said dirty words yeah yeah but they were not violent you want to talk about mean you know we talked about it during the break the fact that you know i think any any person in in alabama or anywhere else as far as that goes but get pulled over by the police get pulled over for a speeding ticket and i I, i've had a few not many thank god as i've gotten older but uh in my earlier days as the police would come up to the car uh, many times they're they either have their hands on their gun or they have their hands drawn, and I'm sticking my hands out the window so I can show that hey, <laughs> I am not a threat to you whatsoever. Right. And they're already on yeah. cue, uh, extremely mad, extremely mm-hmm. mad. You know, over okay, I was I was eight, ten, twelve miles an hour over the speed limit. Come on. Seriously. Well, and now here here's the thing. There have been study after study after study about um, tickets and speeding and everything like that. And there is there's no evidence that ticketing drivers um, makes roads safer. 
There's no evidence for it. There's just no e- people drive the the studies have shown that people drive how they feel comfortable, and because people are ticketed so rarely, like it doesn't affect their behavior. That uh, the ticketing is just a revenue source for the city, and that's another source of police confrontation with citizens. And if we just didn't do that or radically reduced it to like genuinely dangerous behavior on the road, because some people are like actually dangerous and they need to be pulled over, but like speeding eight or ten miles over the speed limit. You know, yeah. come on. If, if you've got to use a radar to, uh, to determine whether somebody's yes. speeding and are they a threat to exactly. the, the people on the road. You know, that's exactly. one of the things whenever I was in Germany, we would get out on the Autobahn and people would be driving 100, 120 miles an hour. Everybody's keeping up with traffic. Wasn't that big a deal. And it wasn't that they would not pull you over for speeding because they, they even though there are no speed laws in the, on the Autobahn in Germany, if you're driving recklessly mm-hmm. and and they can see oh you're weaving in and out of traffic things right. like that then they will absolutely pull you over and ticket you but if if the entire traffic is going at 100 miles an hour which in many cases i've seen mm-hmm. it up around 80 and 90 on i-65 going south mm-hmm. then okay that's the normal flow of traffic going right. any faster is dangerous actually yeah. going any slower exactly. is dangerous as well there there has to be you know some there has to be a human element to that that says no this was dangerous but if right. you're sitting on the side of the road in an unmarked car mm-hmm. with a with a laser gun just pointing it at people coming down the road they're not posing a threat to society right. and that's and that's like it makes the job more dangerous for like police too presumably because they come up to the cars all all like scared and worried and everything and like you could just you could just not do that (laughs) and and there's no threat to you you know pulling over people that are going a little bit over the speed limit or something like that is an unnecessary confrontation with the police for citizens and for the police and that's how i mean people are killed for that philando castile uh he was killed by a cop because he was asked for identification and he leaned over to get it and the cop got scared and trigger happy and shot him yeah well one of our good friends was her daughter was killed from the police chasing somebody through the streets of huntsville yes i mean a very a very dear friend i don't know she was 18 19 20 years old sitting at a red light murdered because the police were chasing people through huntsville right um, yeah, I mean, we've just got to quit relying on the police to solve all of our problems because they've, they've shown over and over that they're unequipped. This is the Valley Labor Report.